1: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So, I'm going to stop talking.
2: It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. In the 1800s, explorers and whalers returned home from the Arctic, describing a cold, desolate world, one that could swallow up expeditions without leaving a trace. But this did not describe the Arctic of the Inuit, who called this world their home. Today, Karen Routledge tells the story of Baffin Island's Inuit community as they came into contact with Western whalers and explorers in the 19th century. Routledge is a historian for Parks Canada. She works and travels in the parks of Nunavut. Her new book, Can You See the Ice? tells the story of the Inuit of Cumberland Sound even though the Inuit worked closely with outsiders their view of the arctic world of the meaning of home even time itself remained far apart karen rutledge thank you so much for talking to me today
3: oh you're welcome it's nice to be here
2: i found it really interesting in reading your book that uh, you talk about cumberland sound in the 19 excuse me in the 1850s which was a place not just for uh, where the Inuit lived, but also where you had a a lot of Americans and Europeans coming, uh, as whalers coming into the Sound. Could you talk about what is Cumberland Sound like in the 1850s?
3: Yeah, so Cumberland Sound is a very large bay on Baffin Island in what's now Canada's Nunavut Territory. And um, it is a really beautiful place, first of all. I mean, it's, um, it's part of the Canadian Shield, so it's got very rocky rocky outcrops, very large mountains to the, the north of the Sound that are um, part of Ayoetuk National Park today. And it's just an incredibly rich um, area for wildlife. So there's, in, in the 19th century and today, it was home to animals like bowhead whales, um, different kinds of seals, Arctic char, beluga whales, um, and then uh, lots of smaller animals and land animals like caribou, um, animals like polar bears, and so it was, it was a, a place where Inuit really um, thrived and and lived for many centuries before uh, foreign whalers began arriving. And well, actually, an Inuk um, teenager led the first foreign whalers into the sound because he told them about the bowhead whales that were Mm, there. mm -hmm. It's, it's different, but it became in a way one of those intensive Arctic resource extraction industry, industrial sites that um, still persists across the Arctic world. So commercial whalers from the U S and, and Scotland, especially just descended on this place. And most, for most of the whaling industry, people, would just, you know, be at sea mostly. But in Cumberland Sound, in order to take advantage of the whales' migratory patterns, they would freeze their ships into the ice and spend the winter living adjacent to Inuit communities. And then um, they would begin to whale in the spring. So it became a real site of cross-cultural exchange for a couple of decades. Um, And by then, the whale populations were already declining due to overhunting. And so, well, and the other thing that happened was that the foreign, the American, and Scottish whaling companies realized that Inuit were already very experienced whalers and they could just contract out the labor to Inuit. Mm-hmm. So, for that couple of decades in the mid 19th century, it becomes a place where Inuit and non Inuit live together for most of the year in very large numbers. And then after that, you just have mm. smaller numbers of, and sometimes no foreigners there year round. But the whaling industry continues until the, the early 20th century.
2: And is that unique to Cumberland Sound? Were there a lot of regions like this in the Arctic, or was Cumberland Sound uh, pretty unique?
3: Um, Cumberland Sound was very intensive, but there were also whalers who um, froze their ships in in Hudson Bay and up uh, on off the north coast of Yukon and Alaska as mm-hmm.
2: well. And the Inuit who lived in Cumberland Sound, the the way they lived was so different from the whalers that came in and overwintered. Can you talk a little about the different ways that they lived?
3: Yeah, so the Inuit, they had been living... Well, there were people who migrated in to work with the whalers, but they had been living in that climate for, you know, since beyond living memory. So they... They, it was really their, their home and they were very comfortable there. Um, they had developed very specialized technologies to, um, to both stay warm in the very cold weather. So they had uh, caribou skin clothing in the winter and, um, and seal skin clothing in the summer usually. And uh, the way that they were able to sew these things made them quite um, airtight and waterproof. Mm-hmm. And then they also had, you know, they, they had uh, dwellings that were very well insulated and small, that they could heat them properly with usually seal or whale oil. And so they they lived. For them, this place was home. It was very comfortable. It was a beautiful beautiful land. And then for the outsiders who came in, they were usually well, especially the the non the whalers with a little, very little experience, the green hands, like the ones who were new. Um, they usually started off in debt. They would get outfitted by a company in New England, uh, often with substandard goods at inflated prices, and they would show up in their very inadequate wool clothing. And um, oh, God. yeah, so although they, there's there's no, in Cumberland Sound itself, there's no recorded deaths of American whalers in the the heart of winter because they usually would just stay on the ship if they didn't have adequate clothing. They were still very uncomfortable in cases of mild frostbite, um, seemed to be quite commonplace. So what I talk about in the book is that it's not at all surprising that Americans see the Arctic as a very inhospitable and dangerous place when they're not outfitted properly for it. Yeah, And also they're just, I mean, they're, a lot of them are away from home for the first time. They're very lonely. So they see that kind of landscape as, I think, as reflecting how they feel inside. Um, whereas Inuit don't see it as a desolate place at all.
2: One of the things that I found most interesting about your book was this idea of home and how these whalers that you were just describing desperately trying to find some parallel to home the home that they know whereas the the inuit have such a different sense of i don't even know if you could call it domestic space but could you could you talk a little bit about what home meant for these two communities
3: yeah so i mean first of all i should say home is an incredibly complicated concept in in both languages <laughs> yeah, i right. mean i think i i think the oxford english dictionary definition of home runs it might be over 100,000 words. It's it's fair. Ver- no, it's not that long. 30,000 words, maybe. I can never know exactly in all the complexity how people in the 19th century felt about home. But the records do give us enough to be able to know something. Sure. So for Americans, the 19th century is a time when the concept of home is changing quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, as I say in the book, the, the term home and homeland, it's quite a political term. I mean, Americans are very actively dispossessing Indigenous people in this period, and some of the people that I write about in the book are actively involved in Indian wars in the West before they go north. So, And I think that all that movement that's going on among the white population in the U.S. at that time is really bringing ideas of home and homesickness to the fore, so First of all, you have this, well, I, here I'm drawing a lot on Susan Matt's book on called Homesickness. And she talks about how in the 19th century, middle class white American men in particular were encouraged to just have no, to give up their mm-hmm. home ties and move around in the name of progress. And in a sense, that does serve to decouple the connection to home to place, but it also results in a very homesick population and people who are thinking a lot about home.
2: Would you say that they tend to idealize that domestic space because they're moving around so much?
3: Yeah, and the other thing that happens in the 19th century is that the the middle-class notion of home becomes much smaller. It becomes much more focused on the single-family dwelling um, with the, the husband, wife, and children inside. And in part, I think that's because you can recreate that space more easily if you're moving around. But mm-hmm. also it's, um, it, yeah, people become very driven to achieve that ideal and um, they become more determined to, you know, go away and make their fortune doing things. Well, very few whalers make a fortune, but they go away determined to make kind of a money that they can come home and buy land or buy mm-hmm. a house. Whereas for Inuit, shelter is always a part of home, uh, people's mm-hmm. good of home, but um, Inuit were they had this like they would move around, but not outsiders often thought they just moved around without like they were just um, they had no home in the sense they could just set up anywhere. But mm-hmm. in Cumberland Sound, Inuit moved very deliberately according to the seasons and they returned to the same sites year after year generally. So they had this kind of in my understanding, they had this kind of network of home places that were quite permanent for them. Um and their concept of uh of home in terms of family would have extended much like very far beyond the nuclear family. And one meaning of home that I talk about in the book that I don't think has any equivalent in English relates to Inuit names. Mm-hmm. So for Inuit um names are passed on from generation to generation, but not in the same sense that they sometimes are in English communities where like a son will be named after his father Um, here. Names are considered to have, um, or sorry, names have personality attributes and other characteristics attached to them. So in a sense, when a baby has the name of a recently deceased elder, that person has in a partial sense returned. And in some dialects of Inuktitut that is spoken of as the name returning home. From what I understand, the names have a very deep connection to the land itself.
2: I was struck by the different descriptions that you give of the same landscape by uh, Inuit and outsiders, the Kualnuat, who who were there, and how, in the case of uh, these these. Whalers who would view the Cumberland Sound as such a desolate and uh, dark place, Uh, the the Inuit seem to know like they almost seem to treat landscape features as as part of home. Am I reading that correctly?
3: Yeah, and I think I think one of the things that really struck me when I was starting to research this book was how, for the whalers, once their ships get frozen in, they really feel cut off, and they are cut off. I mean, Uh they come from a society that's very much Becoming used to having regular mail contact year-round, even with people who live far away. And once the ice freezes, they have no way for their letters to reach their families. They'd, I mean, this is a time when you really, when you leave for a year, you really don't know if your family members are going to survive because of the illnesses that are so endemic. And so they'd mm-hmm. be wondering if they're going to go home and find out that one of their children has passed away or something like that. And... Whereas for Inuit, when the ice comes, that's a time of renewed connections because it's much faster to travel across the ice by dog team than it is when the waters open. So mm-hmm. in, um, in, in many dialects of Inuktitut today, the, the, word, the word for the month of November is tusaktut, which means a means to hear. Like it's a time when you could travel mm-hmm. across the ice and have contact with people you hadn't heard from in many months.
2: That's so interesting uh, that they would view it uh, in such in such different ways. Um, You also uh, talk a lot specifically about uh, one interaction between Charles Hall, the American Arctic explorer, and two Inuit uh, family members, uh, Joe and well, whom he names Joe and Hannah. Uh, Could you talk about their story?
3: Yeah, um, so I I don't think he named them Joe and Hannah. They would have adopted those names earlier from whalers. This couple was known, so a word I use a lot in the book is Kudlunat, which means outsider, um, or sorry, it means non-Inuit person and also not a First Nations person. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kudlunat, so non-Inuit, referred to this couple most often as Joe and Hannah. Those were names they probably would have adopted because they grew up around whalers in Cumberland Sound. Um, and then their Inuktitut names have been said in English as Ibirbing and Tukulitu and many other variations thereof. Um, I don't in the book I use the name Hannah because I don't know what her Inuktitut name actually was. It doesn't seem to have been passed on because she died in the United States. Um, her husband's name is still alive in the North and it's Ipirvik. So I look at at that couple and they're in. Every book about Charles Francis Hall, and they're possibly the most famous Inuit couple in the south of their generation because they survived that incredible six month drift on the ice flow as part of the Polaris expedition when they and half the crew became separated from their ship and drifted south um, from mm-hmm. the north coast of Greenland down to Labrador and were rescued by a sealing ship, I believe. But I wanted to look at what was their time in the United States, like, because that's, has generally, with some exceptions, that hasn't been a focus. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to consider questions like how we can't ever know for sure, but to what extent did they actually want to travel with Charles Francis Hall? And um, what, what kind of factors, I mean, there's no question that the U S ended up being a very dangerous place for them because Hannah and two of her children died there and so I wanted to look at what factors made it difficult for Inuit to survive in the U.S., just as there were many factors that made it difficult for Americans to feel at home in the Arctic. So I look at what their lives were like there and how how they were often put in positions where they had to perform their Inuit identity to entertain others. So they were constantly being scrutinized and judged by outsiders. Um, and I look at how... Americans often thought, oh, they must like to travel around because they're Inuit, but the way they traveled in the U.S. was to them much, well, it it was much more intensive and I think haphazard than it would have been in Cumberland Sound. They were just going all over the place giving lectures. They weren't, um, you know, returning to familiar places over and over again.
2: Probably coming into contact with thousands and thousands of Americans from whom they contracted many of these illnesses. I would imagine.
3: Yeah. Um, e- even though they came from Cumberland Sound, where they would have encountered hundreds of Cuddlinot outsiders on whaling ships when they were in Barnum's Museum, for example, they would have had more people close to them in a day than they would have in a year in Cumberland yeah. Sound. Hmm. And they may already have had tuberculosis in their systems because they had been living next to Cuddlinot whalers in Cumberland Sound and they had been to England before, but um, certainly tuberculosis can reactivate under times of stress, and so they were certainly under considerable stress when they were in the U.S.
2: So how did you, I I mean, I know that, you know, we're both historians, and I know that uh, you did a lot of archival work on this project, but I get the impression that you also did a lot of field research as well. Could you talk about that?
3: yeah. I would say most of my formal research was definitely archival, Mm -hmm. but I did, I was lucky when I was a graduate student, I had the opportunity to go for several summers to Pangnartung, which is um, the main community in Cumberland Sound in, in the 1960s, the Canadian government centralized Inuit into permanent communities. So people that used to live all around Cumberland Sound now live in this one community. So I spent, um, three summers there, I think. And during that time, I conducted formal interviews with elders and was um, given access to some older recordings from the 1990s with elders who had lived through the end of commercial whaling. But a lot of what I learned there was informal. It was just seeing, you know, going out on the land with Inuit and just seeing it as a really beautiful and life-sustaining place. Mm Mm-hmm. And that made me think a lot more about what is missing in these 19th century accounts. What what do we not see in these? So one thing that struck me was, I mean, when you read 19th century American accounts, this is a time when these stereotypes of the Arctic as a very desolate place are really coming to the fore, especially after the disappearance of John Franklin and his crew. So you read over and over again adjectives like icy, desolate, barren, and... One way that Inuit today describe their land in this area of Cumberland Sound is Nunatsiavak, which means beautiful land. And it's um, so, according to the Inuk translator Andrew Diala, it, it's not just it, it means good land or beautiful land. People apply it to places that have access to animals and a, a good level place for tents or homes, and mm-hmm. usually a good harbor. So. It's all about these specific familiar life-sustaining places that are linked together by travel routes. And it's such a different view of the land than what I was getting from the 19th century whaling accounts that it made me want to think more about how those two ideas do and don't fit together and what consequences they've had for how outsiders have dealt with Inuit.
2: Do the residents of Cumberland Sound share a lot of similar attitudes to the people you study in the 1850s or has the culture I, I can i would imagine that culture has changed dramatically for the inuit of cumberland sound
3: i i will never know for sure certainly the culture has changed dramatically there's no there's no question about that because right people have been centralized in these permanent communities where they live year round and they have generally speaking fewer opportunities to get out on the land um after most of them lost their dog teams in large part because they were shot by police and so that that made what had been you know what people might have seen it as a oh yeah we'll go into town and we'll try it out and then once you lose your dog team then you can't um you don't have the option of returning to the land because you now need to have money to buy gas in a snowmobile if you want to go hunting and the only way to get that is in town and i and also something else that was quite devastating was the um the greenpeace and other um animal rights groups campaigns against the seal hunt because that used to be a viable way for people to sell seal pelts that they, when they were eating the meat um and sell the pelts to get money to go hunting and that the bottom fell out of that market so that was another another thing that made it much more difficult for people to get out on the land as much so the, the culture has changed, but when I spoke with elders, I mean, they, they don't, obviously they don't dismiss or discount these changes. I mean, they've been very sweeping and in many cases devastating, but at the same time, they really stress the continuities as well. And so, for example, I mean, when I, when I went there, I was thinking, oh, commercial, you know, after commercial whaling, they didn't hunt bowheads for most of these people's lives. And because they they weren't allowed, they didn't hunt bowhead whales pretty much with very few exceptions from the 1920s through to the 1990s. And the way that I felt that elders were talking about it to me was this was just a a blip in a much longer history. I mean, they would talk about how Mm -hmm. they were bowhead whalers from kayaks before the foreign whalers came. And then when the commercial whalers came, they worked for them. And then there was this period which stretched almost their entire life when they couldn't hunt whales, but now Inuit are whalers again.
2: I was thinking this is uh, exactly what you talk about in your book, this very different uh, sense of time between the outsider community and the Inuit community that it sounds like some of that is still there.
3: I I feel uncomfortable making a lot of claims about... Too
2: much of a generalization.
3: Yeah, yeah. Because I, I wouldn't want to say for sure how Inuit think about time, because obviously that can vary between people. But
2: sure. yeah. I,
3: I do think that the sense, I mean, for the, the big thing that I notice in the book that really stands out is that, with, um, with very, very few exceptions, the Americans who are coming to Cumberland Sound to whale are coming to make a better life for themselves back home in the U.S. They don't consider Cumberland Sound home. Whereas for the Inuit, Cumberland Sound has been, is, and always will be their home. And so they, they think about, that makes them think about the land in a very different way as well, and their relationships with it.
2: After you completed your manuscript, you started working as a historian for Parks Canada, and now you travel pretty extensively in the north Does the work that you've done on this book shape the way you see the places that you go?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, This book was really what got me started thinking about what, what outsiders often miss in the North. And so I think that's attuned me to thinking about that and also just made me think more about how Every place has such an incredibly rich history and it just takes you know a lifetime to know. So I think it's maybe more humble when I go to places that um, to listen to people and think about all the things I don't know about that location. Mm-hmm. The work I mean, the work I do with Parks Canada is really great and it's it's a very different kind of work from academic history because it's more. Um, like a lot of the projects I do are much more community-driven and community-based. So, for example, in the same community where I did research for the book, um, we've just recently been working on a traditional place names project. So this was a project that I, th- I think was brought forward by the community and they said, we really, you know, why do we only have English names on our map of the national park that's near our community? Why, why should we not have our names? And yeah. for Parks Canada, we wanted to use the two names on in when we meet with visitors but we didn't have a complete or correct map because you know as when outsiders write down names they often mishear them and things like that so we met over the course of several workshops over a couple of years with um these these advisory groups that we work with in the communities that have representatives from elders hunters and trappers associations and youth and we sat down with the map and and added names to it. And we, you know, based on their recommendations, we met, we met with several other people in the community that would be knowledgeable of a certain area. And then we came back and through consensus worked through all the names on the map and came up with a a map that we're happy with and that we're going to take forward to the cooperative management board. So it was a very different kind of project and really rewarding for me just to see Mm -hmm. um, the kind of discussions that go on and the depths of knowledge that exists about each place on that map.
2: It's it's uh, It must be satisfying as a 19th century historian to be able to actually work with living people, living sources, new kinds of research that aren't, you know, in the basement of a, an old library, but are actually out in the community.
3: Yeah, and it's interesting because there was another... I mean, obviously, knowledge evolves and changes too, but there was um, Franz Boas did his first field work in Cumberland Sound and he produced this quite Mm -hmm. amazing map with with, with, place names on it. And um, when in the 1980s, there was another place names project that went back and... People, I mean, he had spelled the names in kind of a German, I guess German, Germanized way, and they were able yeah. to go through and for the, the majority of names on that map, they still knew them and they were able to correct the spelling to something that was ah, more wow. appropriate.
2: Oh, that's great! So, do you have a, a new project or a project that you're thinking about
3: um, for Parks Canada or outside? Either okay. Um, so, for Parks Canada, we're um, we're working. I, I also work quite a bit with the White Horse Office in the Yukon, mm-hmm. and we're looking at um, redoing the outdoor signage. There's a an old riverboat stern wheeler on display there, mm-hmm. and um, the signage is quite old. That's around it from the some of it's from the 1980s. So we're looking at redoing that in consultation with First Nations groups um, who were. Uh, who worked on and traveled with and were otherwise, um, you know, altered their lives as a result of the river boats. So I think mm-hmm. that will tell a really, like a, a much more complete story there when we're done.
2: Karen Routledge, thank you for talking with me today.
3: Oh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure.
2: That's our show for today. Next week, historian David Munns talks about the strange science of the phytotron. Our theme music was composed by Zabrat. If you'd like to listen to other episodes of Time to Eat the Dogs, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a few moments to rate and review it. I'd like to hear what you think. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to get in touch, email me at dogs one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. You can also find episodes, links, blog posts, and a lot of exploration-related stuff at dogs. Dot .com See you next week.